Hey, what's going on? Welcome to The Doug Show. My name's Doug Cunnington, and in this episode, I talked to Chris from Niche Safari. This was a pretty fun episode because I reached out to Chris after he created a video on YouTube about the keyword golden ratio and how you should not use it. So after I dried the tears from my face and uh, listened and watched the video, he had some good points. The guy is pretty smart, and it turns out he's a listener of this show. So after some time passed, and really my feelings weren't hurt, I thought it was a good video overall, so I invited Chris to talk through some of the points. So that's what this episode is. It's not really a debate because it turns out Chris and I actually agree on a lot of the matters dealing with the keyword golden ratio, and it's just nuanced. Right. So with the keyword golden ratio, I kind of had to simplify a few things. You have to put it in a format that people can consume and just kind of move on. So if you're a longtime listener of the show, you've probably heard me mention different pieces here and there. But I think Chris had a great way to look at it and he provided some good advice for people. I think. If I had to change anything, it would be the clickbait style of uh, title where basically saying you should not use the keyword golden ratio. I think there's maybe a better way to do it. However, from a get views point of view, it's a fucking good title. I mean, that is what you have to do. But on the other side of it, it turns out. I usually try not to have uh, enemies out there or anything like that. So if someone mentions me, even in a negative format, there's a chance I'm going to reach out and see if we can work together in some capacity. It's much better to have friends than enemies. So anyway, Chris was a good sport about it. We chatted um, after the call. Good dude. Check out Niche Safari over on YouTube. I have a couple of announcements for today. If you are listening to this episode the week that it is published, which is March 29th of 2021, my course multi-profit site is open for enrollment for five days. So enrollment's going to close on April 2nd. So it's open for a little while and then it's going to close up. It'll open again in the future. And the reason why I do that is twofold. Number one, scarcity. I'll be honest, the main reason is a marketing reason. And it turns out if you just have a course or a product out there that people can enroll in at any time, there's a good chance they're probably going to get distracted. They're going to think, hey, it's not the right time. There's another email that they got. They're just not going to pay attention and they're not going to make a decision on it. So with a deadline, with scarcity built in, it makes people think about it. They think, hey, if I want to enroll in this course, I have to decide this week and they have to make a decision on it one way or the other. It may turn some people off and I'm sorry about that. But after doing this for a little while, I'm okay with that repercussion. I'm putting out a lot of other content people could check out if they're not interested in the course, which is totally fine. The second reason is it just helps me manage the intake of new students. So if you open enrollment and you have, say, 30 people that enroll all at the same time, 
They're going through the content roughly at the same speed. You'll have a set of questions that roughly follow along with the units that are released on a week-by-week basis. So from my standpoint, with a very small team, I only have two VAs and they help me with specific things which don't line up with the course at all. So it's really just me working on the course and providing support. And in that case, it's much easier for me to open enrollment, have a cohort of students run through the content, go through the course, and me support them in that fashion. So there's a, there's two reasons at least, maybe more, and the main reason is indeed marketing. And I'm upfront about that. Some people will uh, say it's false scarcity, and I'm telling you, Technically, it could be open all the time, but people just don't buy the course if you do that. So I'm doing it this way. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, I'm flexible. I'm not too rigid on things. So that was announcement number one. Announcement number two is a sponsor. We have ODYS where you can get age domains. I'm going to tell you more about that. The thing is, it's very important if you're interested in their March 2021 promo you can get $500 credited to your account. The, the catch is you have to be accepted into ODYS in the month of March. And then here's the tricky part. I hope you're listening to this right when it's published. You have to use that within a few days by April 1st. So there's some fine print. Those notes are in the show notes. Those details are in the show notes rather. So you can click the link find the terms and conditions, but I want to let you know about that because it is a little bit time sensitive given the basically huge bonus that they're giving you of $500. So I'll leave it at that. Let's get to the interview now. And I'm going to tell you more about ODYS in a bit. Hey, Chris, how's it going today? Great, Doug. How are you? doing well. And I don't know you that well. We were just chatting and I realized I've seen you around a little bit over on YouTube and we have some mutual friends and stuff. So eventually I decided, Hey, I'm going to introduce myself to Chris and I want to do some collaboration because we have some uh, interesting topics to cover as far as the keyword golden ratio. But who are you and and what do you do? And uh, I'm interested myself because like I said, we don't even know each other at all. Yeah. So um, I essentially make websites and, and monetize them through Amazon affiliate program and through display advertising. Um, so I essentially got started in January 2019. So I'm about just over two years into this. I got started because I was originally, I was teaching at a university in the UK. Uh, my girlfriend, who's Canadian, wanted to come back to Canada. So we packed up and came to Canada and, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't put myself through applying for jobs again. <laughs> I, I, I'm not really uh, interested in having a boss or anything. So this, this sort of lifestyle appealed to me for that. So just got really stuck into uh, all the podcasts, started with Spencer Hawes, who I know you sort of started with as well. I followed his, I think it was Niche Site Project 3 or maybe it was 2. The one he did with Perrin where they sort of trained people on, on how to build out uh, affiliate sites. So I followed him, followed John Dykstra, came across you, you right when you started your podcast, Doug Show, um, and I was uh, I listened to you know, most of the early episodes of that, and then uh, just ended up creating websites. And the first one that I made 
it was literally I wanted to see whether you can rank on Google. Like it seems like it's impossible when you've never ranked an article on Google before. It's like, you know, it's really impossible. So the first website I made, it was just not even thinking about a monetization strategy, see if I can get, get it ranking on Google. Ended up doing quite well with that one. Uh, put display ads on it with a Zoic. And then uh, based upon your recommendation, actually, you you were talking a lot about Amazon affiliate and it being the best sort of way to get started for newbies. So my second slide, I went, you know what, you know, Doug talks about this a lot, so I'll have a go at Amazon affiliate. And that Amazon affiliate pro, uh, website did quite well as well. It's still doing pretty well. Uh, so they were sort of my two base websites that um, were good enough that within about just over a year and a half, I just went full-time on it, quit my part-time job, and uh, it's all been going on since then. So that's kind of my origin story. Awesome. And you said about six months, is that right? Uh, about a year, one year and six months was how long it took me. To, okay. Yeah, it took me to sort of replace what I would have made as a university teacher. So I thought, you know, better do this than have a boss. Gotcha. That's great. And can you share like roughly how much you were earning after those 18 months? So after 18 months, uh, geez, I can't remember. It would have been maybe about $6,000 a month thereabouts when I quit my job. Okay. I, I don't remember exactly, but somewhere in that range. Yeah. And did you have any prerequisite skills for websites or content or anything like that? Oh God, no. <laughs> um, I had no idea like what WordPress was when I started. I, I literally, I thought of it because when I left my old job, the lady I shared an office with mentioned something about making, she said, oh, it'd be cool to make a website or an online course or something and just make a living from that. And it kind of stuck with me for the weeks after I quit my job. And I was like, you know what? All I have to do is teach myself. I'm smart enough to teach myself. Just listen to podcasts, see what people in podcasts are saying. And I just like, literally, it's from like for the past two years, at 5 p.m. every afternoon, I go for a walk, hour and a half, listen to a podcast. So it's just an hour and a half of essentially training or professional development every day. And that's how I learned. Yeah, very similar to what to what I did too. And I didn't realize you listened to the show so much. I, I appreciate that. That's great. And I think, I mean, it's a great example. Like a year and a half is totally reasonable to pick up a new skill and then be able to turn it into a full-time income. I think most people, $6,000 goes a pretty decent way, e even in, you know, large, fairly expensive cities. And if you're in a cheaper location, I mean, 6K a month is pretty solid. You have to pay taxes and all that stuff, but uh, that's pretty, that's pretty good. Okay. Here's a quick word from our sponsor from me, but the sponsor is ODYS, and that's a place you can get brandable age domains. It's been awesome to work with them so far, and if you haven't checked it out, highly encourage you to do it this week or very soon before the end of the month, because basically you can get $500 added to your account on these premium age domains. Typically, these domains have plenty of backlinks. In fact, there's some fantastic filtering that you can do. But you get that $500 and it actually expires on April 1st. So you kind of have to get in there quick and hopefully you'll see something that you do like. So they have different filters in here. And currently, as I'm looking at this right now, recording, there's 726 domains in the database here. 
You can filter on industry, language, the price, the top level domain. That's a TLD. So it might be .org, .biz, .net, .com, of course. You can also filter on monthly traffic, the character length, and some of the SEO metrics like the age, the domain rank, and the number of referring domains. And you probably remember I recently interviewed Shonda Newman and she talked about building on an age domain and she gave her specific criteria for how many domains she's looking for and she really emphasized the relevancy to the niche being the most important thing. And the folks at ODYS, they gave me free reign. I said I wanted to be able to you know, talk about whatever I want during the ad and then go through and just talk about some of the domains that are listed. So there's a pretty big range of prices. Um, a lot of them are, I see several in the, you know, just over $1,000 range. There's a few that are, you know, 5000 3000 you know, there's a full range out there. And it depends on the brandability, the qualities of the specific domain and that sort of thing. There's one that sort of caught my eye here, sort of interesting. It's called realparanormalexperiences.com. And this has a very brandable uh, domain name overall. And I think, I mean, I, I don't watch the shows specifically, but I know like on the travel channel, they have like ghost hunters and other things like that. The funny thing is, I, I don't personally believe in ghosts, but I'm so fascinated with the history and just learning about places that are supposedly haunted. So like I said, I'm just interested. And I know I've been to several like state parks and other like haunted places. And I always want to try and take the ghost tour. It's, it's super fun to me. And usually it's a history lesson. Most of the time you get to learn about that sort of thing. But this seems like an area that potentially could grow quite a bit. I don't know <laughs> anything about the uh, products associated with it, but I think you could probably find some things and they give you a little bit of a history on the domain. They tell you where some of the backlinks come from and monetization angles. So they talk about uh, affiliate informational and lead generation and the monetization angle. So here's a quick example of what they tell you in these briefs. In a report by the Pew Research Center, 29% of Americans felt in touch with someone who has died, while 18% say they have seen or been in the presence of a ghost. According to Statista, I'm not sure if you pr I'm pronouncing that right, 39% of British adults aged 18 to 34 were most likely to believe in a paranormal activity in paranormal activity in 2017. This includes believing in ghosts and hauntings. So a lot of people uh, believe in ghosts or hauntings or some kind of thing like that. So I think it's a decent niche and there's probably a lot of ways to monetize it. And I think just brainstorming here, you potentially could have a ton of informational posts if you target location-specific informational content based on hauntings. So I, not too long ago, went to an old mining town called Leadville, Colorado. Very cool town, pretty fun. And they have ghost tours there. I think you probably could have a lot of information on Leadville hauntings and rank really well. 
Of course, you could expand that out to all the, you know, many, many thousands of cities out there. So you could create some informational posts on a specific city with the hauntings, and it's almost unlimited. Tons of research to do, but almost unlimited. So do check out ODYS. I'll just tell you really quick, there are some domains that are in the $500 range, close to $600. So you could potentially get a domain out there for um, just a few bucks if you do take advantage of the $500 bonus that they're offering in the month of March. Even if you're not going to buy a domain, it would be helpful if you go over to ODYS, send them a message, find a way to contact them, tell them you appreciate the sponsorship for The Doug Show. Thanks a lot. So from uh, this point, you at some point started a YouTube channel, right? So how did that go? What made you want to do that? The like the whole reason behind starting a YouTube channel was to essentially get to know people. It's pretty lonely <laughs> sitting around building websites all day. You have no contacts. There's no one you can talk to who's interested in it. Um, so I was following people like uh, Sean Mars, uh, WP Eagle, uh, Amelia Gardner, and uh, they were all sort of sort of in this little community where they'd all talk to each other. And I thought, well, I want to get to know these people and become part of that community. So I started a YouTube channel literally just to sort of introduce myself to these people and say, hey, like I'm building websites too and I'm always chatting in your in your live stream chats and things, but you know, this is my story. Uh, so that's kind of the whole reason I started it. Um, and then, you know, I try to do a video every Monday now just sharing my thoughts on various topics. Uh, I have don't really have plans to monetize it uh, beyond YouTube AdSense ads at the start of it. Uh, it's not really my main sort of, I'm, I'm not intending for it to be an income generating source. It's just, I wanted to get to know people. And so I made a YouTube channel. Cool. That's a, a great way to look at it. And I think you're probably finding now, and as time goes on, just opportunities will show up that you didn't plan for. So yeah, I mean, honestly, ads are a terrible way to monetize and I make hard, I mean, it doesn't even pay for my video editor, but it's kind of cool that you actually can run ads and all that stuff. So, okay. Now you got the YouTube channel going and you listened to my show and then you thought, Hey, I'm going to trash the keyword golden ratio. So you did this video and, uh, actually it's a great title. I mean, you're a talented YouTuber. So what, what was the rough title? If you kind of remember something. I God. Uh, so the title is uh, why the KGR is the worst keyword research method or something along those lines. Yeah. And something like you'll die if you use it. Something. No, you, you didn't oh, really? say that. But no, you didn't say that. But uh, it, it's all in. It's all in good. Good fun here. So I don't take stuff personally. And I I watched your video because it popped up on my feed. So I took a look at it at some point, and I I thought, ah, you know what? That's all right. You know, you did a disclaimer at the beginning, and you said, hey, no hard feelings. I have some opinions on the KGR. Yeah, so, you know. Yeah. Go on. When I made that video, I really tried at the start to separate Doug's a great guy. Doug's taught me a whole lot. I really like Doug with this is research, keyword research method. And we're talking about a keyword research method, not Doug. But I learned very early on in my YouTube career that it's very hard to uh, separate things out like that. So, um, yeah, you know, 
whatever. <laughs> you, you did a pretty good job. I didn't take it. Pr- I mean, honestly, when you are on YouTube and you're doing things publicly or a blog or whatever, you're going to have to get thick skin. So I have fairly thick skin at this point. So we're here and we're going to talk about it. We're going to debate it a little bit. And I think I'll, I'll turn it over to you if that's okay. And you could sort of point out uh, some of the flaws that you identified with the KGR and basically the reason why you did the video. So I'll just send it to you. Yeah, sure. So essentially, uh, my critique, I guess, of the KGR would be, well, like there, there are several, uh, but I guess essentially my main approach to conducting keyword research is just looking at the SERPs. So what's ranking in the top 10 articles and, uh, seeing if there is weakness there in terms of, uh, whether or not there are, uh, forums like Quora or Reddit ranking, whether or not if you click into the articles, the articles are 200 words long and they were written in 2013. It's like, well, it's an old article. It's really short. I could probably outrank it. Whether or not the articles are actually trying to target that keyword or Google can't find a, a sufficient article to cover that keyword. So they've just put something in as a placeholder. So I guess my key approach would be to just look at the SERPs and not worry about um, sort of doing that, the KGR algorithm. Got yeah. it. And are you, do you like the, or do you use keyword search volumes or do you not pay attention? I know there's some people who don't even look at search volumes. So I do use keyword search volumes. Um, I I did a little study on my YouTube channel a couple of weeks ago where I looked at um, WMS everywhere, keywords everywhere, Ahrefs and uh, Surfer's uh, Surfer keyword plugin, and I compared all four of them for about 25 keywords, and all four of them had results which are so wildly different, and a lot of them just didn't pass the pub test, like keywords that you know are searched for, and yet they um, don't show any results. It says there's only 10 people searching for something like Justin Bieber's net worth. And we know that more than 10 people are probably searching for Justin Bieber's net worth per month. So I do use them as a general rule of like, if there's several of the keyword research tools generating 1000 plus saying that there's 1000 plus searches a month for this keyword, it's probably searched for a lot. Um, Or if there's only 10 search volume for it, well, there's probably a bit of people searching for it because it says that they've at least found a few people searching for this keyword. So it's more for me just like a very rough guide on whether or not people are searching for the term, but it's I'm not using it strictly in any way at all. Like, you know, if it's got 10 search volume and I think that logically people are going to be searching for this, I'll go for it. Okay. And I yeah. think that, that's a good approach. I mean, obviously those are estimates because no one can predict the future. And even with Google, I mean, they don't actually know how many people are going to search for a term in the future. So we can only use it as a guideline. And in a relative sense, it gives us a pretty good idea. So one of the things you did point out, which the, uh, you know what, I'm going to get to the punchline here pretty quick. Basically, we agree on a lot of things. And it's the way you pointed it out. I, I don't disagree with most of your points. So we'll we'll come around to that. But you in the video you did mention um like semantic nitpicking, which 
actually, I'll let you define kind of what you mean in that. And I don't know if you uh, can come up with an example, but I'm sure we can kind of figure something out, right? I, I think uh, to my memory, I, I did one that was uh, best barbecue gloves or something versus best BBQ gloves. And uh, it came, came out that one of them had 250 search volume and one of them had zero search volume. But when you look at the SERPs, Google knows that BBQ gloves and barbecue gloves are the same thing and therefore it provides generates the exact same results. I think I think from memory that was sort of my, you know, it's hard to use the KGR when uh, you have to have a, it doesn't reflect search intent. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. That's a perfect example. And I'll, I'll give another classic one too. So top rated barbecue gloves and best barbecue gloves. So if you Google any of the terms that we just mentioned, you'll see that Google replaces uh, the less popular phrasing with the more popular phrasing. And then it actually just bolds it, or at least it used to bold that uh, specific keyword that they're narrowing it down to. So yeah, it Google knows the searcher intent probably maybe better than the searcher. If you misspell something, that's another question people have. Oh, I found this great keyword that was misspelled. Should I go ahead and publish a misspelled keyword and a whole article based on that? The answer is no. Of course, you wouldn't. You wouldn't want to do that. It doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. So, the other thing you pointed out so was. You, oh, go ahead. So just to, just to go on with that, do you what what's your suggested solution? So, for example, top rated versus best, or BBQ versus barbecue. Uh, do you have a suggestion for? A solution when you come across those situations for the the best versus top rated basically go with best uh top rated or anything that's not best um just use best um you you can also check right like i said you can google the term and see what google replaces it with and which one they use is sort of the primary as far as the other example where uh, maybe it's an abbreviation like the bbq versus barbecue Again, you can Google it and check to see what is the favored search phrasing and then go with that one. Oftentimes, like you said, it'll be very clear, like one's a higher search volume and the other one's zero or it doesn't register anything. And at that point, you would use the higher search volume, which may kick it out of the, you know, quote, KGR range of 250 searches or lower. So that's the best way to do it. But when it comes down to it, a lot of the things we're going to talk about and have already, it's the fact that you have to Google the term before you actually select that keyword. You have to you have to look and see what Google is telling you. I mean, the information is right there. All you have to do is check. Yeah. yeah. What about sense. you? Do you have any tips on, on uh, figuring out which keyword phrasing to use? I mean, it's not so, uh, to, to me from, you know, I guess if you say I have a method, I'm not sure if I have a method, but to me, I would have, you know, if BBQ or barbecue, it would have been the exact same thing to me. Uh, I, it wouldn't affect me which one I used in the title of my article that I was writing. Um, and because I'll be looking at the, the results that had been generated by Google, I would just look at either of them and, and see whether or not they have generated results that I think are weak. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And then f further, right. You mentioned, um, 
competition quality and that was kind of a, a big component. So do you have anything to elaborate on, on that as far as using the KGR and competition uh, quality out there? Yeah, I guess essentially uh, one of the most important things to me is not how many results are generated, but the quality of the results that are generated. Uh, so if in the top five ranking on Google, we've got wire cutter and I would have set up until a few months ago, gear hungry. Um, but, you know, big websites like that, if they're ranking number one for one, two, three and four for that, uh, that keyword, chances are I'm not going to try to go for it, even if it fits within the KGR. You know, if the top five articles are just completely unreachable, there's no chance that I'm going to try to going to rank for it. I'd probably try to go longer tail, uh, find something that is has weak, more weakness on the SERPs. Okay, very good, very good. And I want to jump into why it works sometimes. So the KGR, you you pointed out some some good issues, which I think were valid. Um, but it works sometimes. A lot of people will say, uh, you know, I've only used KGR and it's doing fantastic, blah, blah, blah. I know you can also find examples where it didn't work for people. Um, so I'll, I'll let you uh, deliver. This is a good point. So I'm going to let you uh, throw it out there. I'm not sure what point that, that, you, <laughs> that you want me to say. <laughs> oh, okay. So in the funny thing uh, for the uh, for the, the people out there, this video that Chris did was uh, – I don't know, it was probably like a year ago or something. So he, he doesn't even really remember, even though the wounds are so fresh for me. I'm, I'm just kidding. So it forces you, the KGR forces you to look at the long tail keywords because you're looking at 250 searches or less and you have to be even more discriminating because you're using all in title. So it really filters out a lot of other keywords that may be more competitive just in general. Now, as we're pointing out, it's very easy to pick a shitty keyword, even if you're doing this, you can pick bad keywords that are long tails that are not going to work out for you for some reason or another. And there's many reasons that they might not. Searcher intent, competition level, maybe you, you've you've uh, picked some sort of a weird phrasing that no one actually uses, so it's not going to be super helpful. But I mean, the fact is, it forces you to go to the long tail. So, a- anything else to add, Chris? Yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. Um, I, I think I said in the video something along the lines of the the reason it does work sometimes potentially is just because you're writing for long tail keywords at a low low search volume. Because uh, you say, do you say you have to, it has to be under 250 searches per month? Yeah, something yeah. along those lines. So chances are you're more likely to come across long tail keywords if you're trying to find keywords that are less than 200 searches a month. Perfect. And yeah. I think from that you make my whole point on why the KGR works. So yeah, there's flaws in it. There's flaws in any of the tools you're using, any kind of method, but the KGR does give people confidence to look at some data, try some things out. If they go this one step further and maybe they watched all my videos on the topic, or maybe they go to WP Eagle and they watch uh, some of his videos on it, they will look, they'll Google the terms, they'll look at the competition, they will refine and distill that list down to something that's even better than just long tail keywords, but where they actually have a chance. And then for some people, it works out great. So it it's this marketing thing. 
I, I gave a thing a name and then I kept talking about it. So uh, I, I think it made it makes it accessible for people that are brand new, even with the flaws. Sure. That's, I mean, there, there are plenty of different ways to skin a cat and, you know, there's plenty of different ways to, to, to find keywords and rank them on Google. And if, if, if people feel good about using the KGR, like I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell them they're doing it like they're, they're an idiot. Like if it works for you, good for you. Like, <laughs> yep. And, and I, it's funny too, because people sometimes think I, I only go for KGR keywords and I'm really, uh, I don't know, like preachy and dogmatic about it, but I mean, yeah, use whatever tool you want. It's one of the methods you can use. There's a ton of others out there. A lot of them are really similar. And I, I do think, as you probably agree, long tail keywords are a great approach. However you find them, totally up to you. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I, I th- honestly, I think we agree 90% of the time on most of the things. So I don't do that step of doing the KGR because, you know, I, I prefer a different way. Awesome. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, Chris, where can people find you? So uh, I guess, yeah, you can follow me at Niche Safari uh, YouTube channel. Um, just type in Niche Safari. Uh, you can find me there. And uh, yeah, I release videos maybe once a week. And awesome. I just release a video on whatever I want to talk about. So um, yeah, feel free to follow me there. Very cool. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, mate. Thanks to Chris from Niche Safari, and it was cool to connect with him. Definitely check out his channel over on YouTube. He and I did a collaboration, and we answered some questions out there, and that'll be published on his channel, and that'll be coming out sometime soon, or it might already be out, depending on when you listen to this. So I won't even, <laughs> I won't even try to tell you a specific date. Just go check out Chris's channel. I have a short update for the site growth case study that I'm working on. This is the one that I started early this year on a site that I purchased back at the end of 2019. Did a few things in 2020, was able to grow the site pretty well from a percentage standpoint, but there's a lot more that I can do with it. I partnered with brand builders. They're helping me out with managed services essentially. So they're adding content and doing some link building. We'll come to the link building sometime in the future. However, at this point in time, what I do have is a bunch of content. So previously, I think there were about 55 to 60,000 words of content, roughly 35 posts. The site was making a few hundred bucks per month. Not bad. There's definitely room for growth. Virtually no links on the site. And there's a whole uh, update that I've given at the very start of the year. And then again, a few weeks ago. So if you're just coming up to speed, you can't check out the blog post that tracks along with it. So at this point in time, I've gotten the content back and it's roughly doubled or it is double the content that was already on the site. So I got about 57,000 words and here's a little tip. So when you're working with a content company, they they want to try to do a good job. They want to keep you on board. So if you get the content back and there's something that you're not happy with for some reason or another, you should definitely let the project manager that you're working with or whoever your account manager is on the content team, let them know. Because again, they want to keep you 
on board. They want to keep you as a customer. So if you let them know what you don't like, they will most likely go in and update your content to your specs. And then they'll probably want to keep doing that same thing so that you'll be a happy customer. The whole point is, I know I've talked to many people in the audience, many listeners, and you, you've you said, ah, you know, I got content back, but I wasn't happy with it and I had to spend a lot of time editing it. Well, that's not what the company wants at all. They want you to stay as a sub- subscriber, as a ongoing customer for a long time. So I didn't like some of the things that were done in the content. And I'll list out some of those specifics. Basically, an intro is necessary for any piece of content, but it should be fairly short. Uh, What I was seeing was kind of a long intro, maybe a couple paragraphs. And I thought, you know what? People just want to get to the meat. They don't want to hear, you know, 400 words on a specific topic and they're not even getting to the point yet. So they want to get right to the meat and understand what's going on, whatever, if it's an informational query, if it's a product review, they just want to get to the point. Along the same lines, I also noticed that definitions were provided for the most basic pieces of uh, the product. So without giving out the niche specifically, let's say I had a website on video equipment and digital cameras. I maybe would search for something like best mirrorless camera for YouTube. What I want to see is a curated list of cameras that are mirrorless that people use for video, probably on YouTube. What I don't want to see is a definition of a camera and a definition of a digital camera. Makes no sense. If I've Googled something very specific. I already know what a camera is. I know what it can do. I know what YouTube is. I don't need to see a definition for those very basic pieces. It's kind of a prerequisite for Googling that term. So I I went back and I said, hey, tighten up these intros. I don't want a long, boring intro. Just get to the point. Additionally, if you're defining the most basic building blocks of whatever it is we're talking about in the niche, remove it. You don't need to define camera if someone searched for mirrorless camera for YouTube. Further, some of the other stuff was pretty nitpicky. I mean, I am a very particular person. There's no (laughs) mistaking that. So I'm, I'm pretty hard on vendors and companies I'm working with, especially if it's in this capacity, right? So I'm telling you, hey, I'm working with brand builders. So I'm I'm pretty rough on the teams and probably more harsh than I would be if I was just a standard regular old customer. So a couple of the other things that I asked to have updated subheadings. A lot of times I was seeing a subheading that was the full Amazon product name. So if you have seen some of the full Amazon product names uh, in the recent couple years, you know that sometimes there's stuff with keywords and sometimes they are about as long as a sentence. So I wanted those shortened, especially when they were subheadings. A lot of times it ended up being uh, very awkward looking and the subheading would take up like two to three lines. I also asked for some internal linking. There wasn't any internal linking. I have Link Whisper on the site, so that's a pretty easy thing for them to do. 
I wasn't happy with the specific subheading hierarchy, and I just wanted there to be a little bit more thought so it actually followed a good hierarchy. And if you saw the table of contents at the top of the blog post, you would very clearly see, oh, here's this section, here's all the subheadings, it makes sense like an outline would. I also noticed that there were like unrelated images. So for example, at the top, they would put in an image of a camera or a person, uh, you know, I guess just like a specific camera and it wasn't the camera that was being reviewed. So that doesn't make sense. I'd rather just not have an image at the top, not a featured image. And I'm not huge on featured images all the time anyway. So those were a couple of the things that I was not exactly happy with. Easy to tweak. And again, the, the big point here is if you're not happy with a vendor, especially a service company that wants to have you as a customer for long term, you should tell them what you're not happy with. Most likely they're going to jump in, try and fix it. You could even ask them a very straightforward just in a general sense. So I would even ask them like, hey, if this is not uh, appropriate, then we're probably not going to be able to work together. But if you guys and gals can go and fix this and then deliver this high quality of standards and meet the specs that I'm looking for in the future, we can have a great long-term relationship here. But if not, if it's not a good match and you don't want to deal with me complaining, then it's probably not going to work out. It'll save time for everyone. You'll get what you want as far as the quality. And I mean, it's tough too. I mean, the other issue here is there are so many service companies out there. So if you're not happy, you might think, hey, I'm just going to go to another one, which might work out. But there's there seems to be a pretty unfortunately, a high level of variability with the quality, depending on the writers and stuff that you may be dealing with as I've tested out more and more services. Things look pretty good with brand builders and it's only preliminary results at this time. I've only published uh, all this content in the last couple weeks. So I haven't seen a huge uptick in traffic or anything like that or earnings. However, on the search console, I am seeing more impressions so far. So I can see a, a little gradual, a very, very gradual uptick in the number of impressions. A couple days here and there, I did see a spike in the number of clicks. So that is trending in the right direction. And I have high hopes for this site because it was doing pretty well as it was neglected. It has a fairly high amount of earnings for the amount of traffic that it gets. And as I mentioned a couple of times, I've doubled the content and we're going to be adding more and more content throughout the year. We, we haven't even gotten into any of the link building and promotion yet, which I think is a whole other area that has been absolutely neglected. I think it only has something like 10 or 15 links total. 10 or 15 referring domains to be specific. So very light on the links. I think the domain rating is six or something like that. It's super low. So just want to give you an update on that. Shout out to Brand Builders. And I know they actually have uh, like free, little free coaching calls where they can hear about what you're working on. And uh, to my knowledge, there's no sales pitch or anything like that. I suspect they would probably tell you if they if they did have a service or 
some kind of suggestion that matched up. I bet they would tell you about it, but it's not high pressure. And they're just in there trying to learn about what you're working on and see if they could help give you suggestions or anything like that. I'll put in a link for the show notes and you can check it out if you're interested and you could just book a half hour, no charge. All right. Thanks a lot to Brand Builders for offering that up. And they got another mini little update for you. I want to give a little update on the new podcast that I'm working on with my friend Carl Jensen. I've teased this topic for a while. And to be honest with you, one interesting thing that happens when you have multiple podcasts, you do live streams, and you talk to other people for their shows as well, you actually forget what you say and when. Sometimes you forget when a particular episode or YouTube video is published. It's kind of interesting. It's a weird problem to have. I've never never thought that I would have such an issue. But anyway, the point is, I'm doing this show. It's going to launch soon. I don't have a specific launch date. It's probably going to be late April, maybe early May. Not 100% sure. It is called the Mile High Fi Podcast. So we're going to be recording video as well. There's going to be a YouTube channel, but it's just going to be us recording. There are going to be episodes where it's just Carl and I chatting. There will be interviews. I'm not sure the exact breakdown, roughly 50-50 if I had to guess, but it could sway one way or another. I have to brag and take a little bit of credit for coming up with the name. So Mile High Fi kind of fits perfectly. Longmont, Colorado is 5,000 feet, so mile high as well, just like Denver, or very close to it. We can, we're, we're calling it that. We're calling it that. You can see mountains from here. It's pretty cool. So I was happy with that. And the other thing is they have a lot of different TLDs. I mentioned that earlier for uh, domain names. So it's the top level domain they have many different ones, and I knew that there was one that was a dot club, C-L-U-B. So a couple people are ahead of me, and you know what I'm going to say. I also got the domain milehighfi.club. So the email newsletter, the email list, it's going to be the Mile High Fi Club. So you can join the Mile High Fi Club. That is a long way for me to say that. There's a link in the show notes. You can sign up for the email list. So we'll let you know about new shows when it launches, of course. And I believe we're going to be sending out just a weekly newsletter where we just let you know about things we're interested in. It's a ripoff of Five Bullet Friday from Tim Ferriss. A lot of people do it. I mean, I send out a weekly newsletter on Fridays for niche site projects. So this is going to be another one, probably a lot more focused in the personal finance and financial independence space. It's been great recording the episodes. We're potentially a little bit behind where we wanted to be. But the other cool thing is Carl and I didn't want to make this stressful in any way. So when certain things happened, like we had a big snow day a couple of weeks ago, we canceled recording that day. It was not a big deal. And we'll just catch up later. And then one of the things we're doing is recording several episodes ahead of time. So we have a pretty decent buffer. I know I'm going to be doing some traveling. Carl's going to be doing traveling and just taking time off. So it'll be good if we can get several episodes in the pipeline. So 
we can not record for a month or more, depending on how much time and traveling uh, we're taking off, that sort of thing. So anyway, we're very excited about it. I think the topics are sort of new and fresher for me. Carl's been doing a lot of the personal finance and financial independence topics for years, but for me, a lot of things are are new and I haven't really looked in depth. In fact, as I was out walking around today, just walking outside, walking Georgie, I had some pretty intense, uh, I guess, imposter syndrome where I was like, how am I doing a show on personal finance and financial independence? It seems... Weird. Seems very weird, especially when I hear other people's stories and I understand what they've done in the FI space and where I have basically been super lazy and not really paid too much attention and kind of stumbled my way into a really good spot. Feels weird. Feels weird. I mean, I, maybe I'm not giving myself enough credit or something like that, but definitely cross my mind. I'm like, how the fuck do I have this show? And then another podcast as well coming up. So I hope you'll join me out there. The link should be active by the time this episode goes live. Just head over to milehighfi.club and you could join the Mile High Fi Club. All right. I think I'll call it a day and we're going to uh, just sign out. We'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks a lot for checking this one out.